Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Evicted by Matthew Desmond. We are reading chapter 11, which is entitled The Hood is Good. And I think we got about six more pages or so left in this chapter. Quentin pulled the truck onto a dark and deserted street. There was one more stop to make. Terry on Cherry Street. This was Sharina's most far-flung property, located on the west side of Milwaukee, near Washington Park, and a 15-minute walk to the colossal Miller Brewery. Sharina pounded on Terry's door, loud the first time, and even louder the second. The porch light flicked on and shone down on Sharina. She was in the fur-lined coach boots with matching purse she had bought in Jamaica. Quote, Who's that? End quote. A gruff voice barked. Quote, It's the landlord. End quote. Quote, Oh. End quote. The voice said, resigned. Quote, that's right, end quote. Sharina whispered to herself as the locks came undone. Inside, the house was warm and smelled of dinner fried in grease. A single, small lamp was on, stingy with the slide and leaving parts of the room veiled in shadow. Sharina found Terry in the company of some elderly kin and other children. Terry was a plump and pretty woman with dark skin, long braids, and an empty stare. She was mentally slow and received SSI for her condition. Her boyfriend, who had answered the door, Antoine, a bony man with slicked back hair, leaned against the wall just beyond the edge of the light. Quote, um, what's going on? End quote. Sharina asked Terry. Quote, I ain't got any money with me, and quote, Terry's voice trailed off. Sharina leaned over Terry with her hands on her hips. Quote, Terry, end quote. She began using her stern teacher voice. Quote, I know, end quote. Quote, just give me the money. I'll give you a receipt, end quote. A moment passed. Then Terry said, quote, all right, end quote, and reached into her pocket. Seeing this, several of the older children left the room. Sharina accepted a thick roll of cash. Quote, who did your hair, end quote, she asked, reaching out and spinning one of Terry's braids. Quote, you like her hair, Antoine? End quote. Antoine was bringing a cigarette to his mouth. The lighter's flame momentarily brought his face out of the darkness. It was a face creased with humiliation. Lifting herself into the suburban, Sharina said to Quentin, quote, We got 14, 1400. Why can't I get rid of her? End quote. Terry rented a four bedroom apartment for $725 a month. She still owed $350 plus a late fee, but says she'd have the rest of the money tomorrow. Quote, well, all right, end quote. Quentin congratulated his wife. Sharina felt accomplished, if unsurprised. On multiple occasions, she had taken attendance entire paycheck. Once, a young mother had offered Sharina her debit card. Then that brings us to a, a changing in the theme here. And I think that Again, just the what what is hard to to turn a blind eye to is just the type of situations that the people who are living in Sharina's uh, properties are in, and the the vulnerability of those people, and how many people all over this country are in similar situations as the tenants who. Uh, live in these properties.
On 18th and right, Mikey was trying to do his homework at the kitchen table. Math. He wasn't confused, just distracted. There was so much noise. Ruby, who could fly through her homework before the bus pulled up to their stop, was practicing the stanky leg in front of the television. Patricia's middle child, Jada, was banging on different things with an empty Mountain Dew bottle. And Natasha was trying to comb Kayla May's hair, typically a three-hour war. Natasha's belly was growing. The ultrasound had revealed only one baby, a big-headed boy, just as Doreen had guessed. Doreen and Patrice sat around the table, opposite from Mikey, and debated what to do about Sharina's eviction notice. Doreen had had no luck finding another apartment. When she called one number listed in the Red Book, she heard a recording message that, message that listed pre-qualifications. Quote, no evictions in the last three years, no money owing to a landlord, no criminal arrest in the last three years, end quote. Even though, even though Doreen had withheld her rent after the incident with the plumber, they didn't expect Sharina to start the court process so quickly. Patrice thought it was social worker Tabitha's fault. When Doreen told Patrice the reason Sharina had given for the plumbing being neglected, Quentin had lent someone his truck for a month, Patrice rolled her eyes. Quote, you're in Jamaica, end quote, she said, quote, and we can't even take baths. All that money they got, she sound dumb. If I believe that, then slap me dead, end quote. Her hand fell hard on the kitchen table, and Mikey's head snapped up from his math problems. Mikey took his papers to Jada and Kayla May's mattress. Before he got back to work, he pulled out a small American flag from a special hiding spot. His teacher had handed the flags out the day Obama was inaugurated. Before that, the North Side had been covered in political posters, those dark blue signs planted firmly in lawns, taped to crack windows, tacked up in people's bedrooms, and lining littered sidewalks. Wright Street had erupted in cheers the night Obama won. Neighbors had unbolted their doors and stepped out on their porches just to look at one another. Mikey stretched out on the mattress, holding the flag at attention and staring at the ceiling. On the day of her eviction court hearing, January 27th, Doreen limped out of her house and found a bus stop. She had wrapped her head and put on white Velcro sneakers. The shoes felt like they belonged to someone else. Doreen went barefoot when she was inside, which was almost always. She had become as much of a permanent fixture in the apartment as the floorboards and door frames. She hated the idea of taking a bus downtown to eviction court. Plus, her foot was throbbing. The night before, the back door had fallen on it. It first fell on Ruby when she had attempted to prop it back up, pinning her to the ground. When Doreen tried to free her daughter, she slipped and the heavy door came down on her foot. It had swollen up plump and watery. The doctor on the phone had advised going to the ER, but Doreen refused. Quote, I'm just going to end up waiting all night in that room, end quote, she said. Doreen didn't trust doctors any more than her father had. Doreen watched the icy city roll past her bus windows. She didn't know how eviction court would go, so she allowed the new baby to occupy her mind. The thought of Natasha as a mother, fickle, youthful Natasha, made Doreen laugh. Doreen remembered when Patrice was born. They delivered her through a cesarean section because she was so big. Doreen had had to trade her baby clothes for bigger sizes. Natasha was big and CJ too. So when Ruby came out weighing only six pounds, Doreen didn't know how to handle her. Quote, she made me mad. I couldn't hold her, end quote. 
Natasha had recently applied for W-2, and Doreen worried that it would affect her benefits and cut into the family's food stamps. It would balance out if Natasha stayed in the house and helped pay the bills, but lately Malik had been asking Natasha if she wanted to move into his mother's place in Brown Deer. Natasha swore there was no way she would, but Doreen sensed that she was seriously considering it. Sharina left later, answering her phone as she drove downtown. A woman on the other end was saying that, during her break, she had walked out of her $10 an hour temp job at Landmark Credit Union. Quote, Chelsea, end quote, Sharina yelled, her voice thick with disappointment. Quote, I don't think that was a good idea. I'm going to talk with you about it when I come out of eviction court, but you know I'm going to fuss at you, right? End quote. Quote, I know, end quote, Chelsea said. Quote, I'm on you. I'm killing you, Chelsea, end quote. Sharina was trying to help Chelsea, quote, get her credit together, end quote. For $150, Sharina offered to examine her credit report and use a technique called, quote, rapid rescore, end quote, to improve her score. Clients like Chelsea got their money's worth. Sharina was a hard coach who worked for real results. She knew the value of a good credit score, especially when it came to selling her properties to her clients. Sharina had been dabbling in rent-to-own ventures. She would rent one of her more stable tenants a house for six months. During that time, Sharina would attempt to rapid rescore the tenant's credit. If successful, she would then help that tenant secure a loan for the price Sharina was asking for the property. The Federal Housing Administration often required only a 3.5% down payment, which most working tenants could cover with their tax refund. Sharina has seen some of her properties double in value during the housing bubble, and she knew the inflated assessments wouldn't last forever. She was trying to sell a rent-to-own tenant one property for $90,000, a property she owned free and clear, having purchased it at a far lower price. Sharina would reinvest the cash in more properties, and the new homeowner would inherit a massive debt. Sharina would say that that was better than not owning a house at all. In years past, Sharina had marketed her credit repair to home loan services to physically and mentally disabled people on SSI. Quote, a whole bunch of those people came and bought houses. They ended up losing them, but the thing is, they need to be policed a little bit more. Wasn't nobody saying, Johnny, pay your mortgage. They just may not have been mentally capable. End quote. They say the foreclosure crisis started on Wall Street with men in power ties trading top. Excuse me. They say the foreclosure. They say the foreclosure crisis started on Wall Street with men in power ties trading toxic assets and engineering credit default swaps. But in the ghetto, all you needed was a rapid rescore coach and a low-income tenant hungry for a shot at the American dream. When Doreen and Sharina met in the courthouse, Sharina was not in the best of moods. The conversation with Chelsea had annoyed her, and on top of that, the day before, the city had pulled almost $20,000 in water bills and taxes from her bank account. The deduction was unexpected and left Sharina with exactly $3.48 in her business account, $108.32 in her personal account, and a couple of uncashed checks in her pocket. Sharina was not used to being broke, but the first of the month was a few days away. In the hallway outside room 400, Doreen explained that she wasn't trying to scam Sharina by moving out quickly. She was looking for housing to plan for tomorrow. Sharina was already savvy to the story. Unbeknownst to Doreen, Tabitha had called Sharina that morning pleading her client's case. If she got the Heastons into this mess, she would try to get them out. When it looked like Sharina would agree to a stipulation, Tabitha flattered her by saying, quote, 
You are a gangster when it comes to your money, end quote. It made Sharina laugh with pride. Sharina drew up a stipulation agreement. If Doreen wanted the eviction dismissed, she would have to pay $400 extra next month and an additional $50 the following three months. Doreen signed the papers. Saving for their move would have to wait. And then that brings us to the end of chapter 11. I thought that chapter was a little bit longer than that. And hmm, let's have a reflection and I'll decide whether we'll just make this a short episode or whether we'll start on the next chapter. So I think that that sentence, you are a gangster when it comes to your money. Uh, I think that that it was a time in my life where I would have seen that for somebody as a compliment and would have seen that as somebody for as admirable, that that quality in somebody. And it is very recently in these last two years and two years and two months, two years, three months since I've been involved with the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice in which I have understood how much capitalism is used uh, to hold up racism and how, and vice versa, how much racism is used to hold up capitalism and how you cannot escape from the, the, the grasp of either one of them without conquering or without uh, combating both of them simultaneously and the people that she's being a gangster about her money with are not rich CEOs. They are not uh, rich stock stockbrokers. The, the, she's being a gangster about her money with poor people, with people on SSI, with people with mental disabilities, with people who are vulnerable and marginalized and subjugated and oppressed and exploited and people who have been fit, dealing with that gener generationally. And and she's not. It's not as if she is giving back, or it's not as if she is fighting against some type of a system. Uh, this is done something that is being done to accrue individual wealth, to accrue individual, not even really wealth yet, but to uh, accrue individual uh, finance and individual riches. And it's not something that's being done to better the community or to better people, uh, to better the neighborhood or to better the city. And it's true. Every That does not have to be everybody's end goal. That does not have to be everybody's objective. Uh, but it is important that we learn how to articulate the fact that people who have these individualistic agendas and individualistic objectives achieve them and progress in them in the direct detriment to the collective, to the, to, to the collective and to collectivism. And we see that there is not, she can't find just one person to exploit to get money. She has to accrue a whole, uh, collection of people that she can exploit to get to this money. And so we see how collectivism and individualism uh, are in this constant tug and pull with each other. And I think one of the other things that, that comes in here, you see how when Doreen was looking for places to other places to move to that one of the first places she called said that she couldn't have been arrested in the last three months. Uh, and I think that that is how you see how mass incarceration works its way into the housing crisis is that uh, in certain places, if you get arrested or get certain convictions on your record, you can no longer live, excuse me, live in public housing, or you can't live with family or friends who have public housing. Uh, we read about that and seen that, how that played out in high risers. And, uh, 
We've also seen throughout reading here how when it's time for somebody to be evicted, the sheriffs are contacted and the sheriffs come into play. And so you see how police terrorism works its way into the housing crisis. And we've seen through 11 chapters, getting ready to start the 12th chapter here, how these issues are disproportionately negatively having impacts on black people in this specific city in Milwaukee. And so we see how racial injustice makes its way into the housing crisis as well and to issues of housing as well. I'm saying housing crisis. And I think sometimes that has different connotations, but the issues of housing as well. And so for anybody who may be wondering how is uh, this book evicted or how is high rises or how is a book that we will read soon, the color of law, how do these things that are about housing have a connection to uh police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And those are some of the ways that those connections exist. Okay, we're going to end this episode and we will start chapter 12, which is entitled Disposable Ties on the next episode. That way we can keep that whole chapter within one episode because I don't think it's going to be that long. So share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'll let you tomorrow.